the humidity 76%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Philip Wong. Good morning, Philip. Morning, Janice. On today's program, we're talking about possible plans by the government to open more border crossings around the clock after many mainland visitors were left stranded following New Year's Eve celebrations here. At 9.20, we'll look at the recent increase in air pollution levels and find out the reasons behind the surge. And after 9.30, we'll get the latest on the New Year's Day earthquake in Japan. And of course, let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now, the Chief Secretary, Eric Chan, said uh, the government will look into opening more border crossings around the clock after many visitors came here to uh, watch the fireworks on New Year's Eve but uh, struggled to get back to the mainland afterwards. And uh, following a meeting with representatives from the tourism and transport sectors, uh, Mr Chan said authorities will discuss with their mainland counterparts the possibility of keeping railway links open later and stepping up train services on special occasions. To comment on these possible measures. We're now joined on the line by Tony C, Associate Professor at the Polytechnic University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Good morning, Professor C. Hey, good morning, Janice. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, um, before we talk about the measures, I just want to get uh, your view on uh, what actually happened. Uh, were you surprised by the number of mainland visitors stranded after the fireworks here? Uh, I think it's a good strategy that if, uh, say, later on in the Chinese New Year, we have special event, we can uh, better prepare for the uh, huge uh, travel uh, demand for for the traveler from the uh, mainland. Right, but I I just want to get your view on what actually happened uh, after the uh, the, uh, uh, New Year's Eve uh, fireworks earlier this uh, this week. I mean, uh, many mainland travellers were stranded here. Were you surprised by the number of visitors stranded in Hong Kong after the fireworks? Uh, I think according to the news, the government uh, or the bus uh, operator, they already expected in the afternoon that there would be a huge demand of the traveller from mainland and they need to go back uh, in uh, after the fireworks. But why do you think, uh, Professor C? Why, why do you think there uh, there was such a big problem, especially you know after midnight when everyone was trying to return back to the mainland? I saw a lot of photos, um, you know, on Facebook showing people sitting down on I think it was Shangshui uh, KCR's MTR station. A lot of people waiting for the trains. A lot of lines piling up. You know, why do you think that happened? Uh, I think the issue would be that this. Uh in the evening, after the twelve, uh, after uh, the twelve is uh, only one, this only one border still open for twenty-four hour because when they come, it was in the daytime, uh, all the border was open and they can take the MTR train. But in the evening, the uh, the, the only way to go back is by bus, by the cross-border bus to to that uh, the only one uh, border track. All right. So currently, uh, the Lok Ma Chao uh, border uh, checkpoint is uh, is the one that uh, can that operates uh, twenty four hours, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau bridge? Is that open? That that should be open twenty four hours too. 
Yeah, but I think it depends on where they they, they go because I think most of them uh, would like to go back to Shenzhen, and I think Lok Ma Chau or uh, other borders uh, would be the most convenient ways for for them to go back because it's connected to the MTR system in the uh, in the Shenzhen. Right. And uh, what do you think of uh, some of the measures that the government uh, will consider, for example, the uh, the opening up of more border crossings around the clock or, or extending the operating hours of uh, rail links? I think it's reasonable because uh, we all agree that the only the MTR or the train can cater such a huge huge demand uh, in such a short period because for for buses uh, the the capacity is only about 50 or even less but for for train one train can already cater for more than uh, several thousand people. Now, when we look at the number of visitors coming in into Hong Kong uh, for New Year's and during the Christmas period, you know, obviously it was a lot higher than last year and the year before because of COVID. But pre-COVID, I think the numbers were actually lower. So, I mean, in a way, uh, there's still, I mean, the, the issue still arised, but in the sense that they, we, we, we should have predicted this would have happened, right, if pre-COVID we saw a very large number of people. Oh, I think maybe the travel pattern is a bit uh, changes. Before the COVID, they come in a group and they they stay overnight. But uh, may, maybe after the COVID, they prefer to just uh, come into Hong Kong uh, for, for a day trip only rather than staying in Hong Kong for overnight. This, uh, I think this is something we uh, could, uh, would not expect uh, by comparing with the pre-COVID situation. Yeah. Right. And to Professor C, I mean, earlier you said uh, it's a good idea or it's reasonable uh, for the government to consider extending the operating hours of rail links. Uh, what about uh, other suggestions by, by some people, for example, uh, Freeman Cheung, the, the secretary of the Hong Kong Guangdong Boundary Crossing Bus Association. Now, now he's calling for authorities to extend service hours at the Shenzhen Bay port. Do you think that would help? I mean, is that a good suggestion? I think it's also a good suggestion because this Shenzhen Bay port is also a convenience way for, for the traveller from the mainland. Yeah. Right. And what other suggestions do you, do you have? Uh, I, I think the, uh, it could already help if, say, for example, the uh, Long uh, the uh, and also the Lohu uh, border can, can open for 24 hours for one or two particular days that uh, like the um, New Year Eve. You know, you mentioned earlier about the upcoming uh, Chinese New Year, the same uh, situation might arise. What other, you know, public holidays or calendar dates do you, aside from Chinese New Year, do you think it, will ha- it can potentially happen again? Uh, I think it depends on what, what kind of event we, we have, say, for example, for Chinese New Year, for the firework, it, it uh, happened a bit earlier, it's at uh, 8 p.m., but for this New Year Eve, it's actually in the midnight. Right, so, so, yeah. so do you think it will be less likely to, I mean, like a similar situation to a New Year's Eve, do you think it will be less uh, likely to uh, occur again during a Chinese New Year? Uh, yes, maybe just extend the operation hour for uh, one or two hours. Maybe it's already can it could be sufficient. But what about the you know the rest of the calendar year? Do you, do you think maybe dates like Easter or summer holidays? Do you think that that those situations can arise again? 
I think it may not be the the issue unless we have some special event that uh, lasts until very late in the evening. Okay, yep. and and apart from uh, extending the operating hours of railings, I mean, um, authorities here they will also discuss with uh, the, main, the mainland counterparts about the possibility of uh, uh, keeping railway links open later, like we just talked about. Um, and also, the chief secretary Eric Chan he added that uh, he will host a high-level coordination meeting to uh, make sure uh, that uh, travel across the border will be smooth on special days. And also, authorities will see how uh, to enable cross-border coaches to operate more smoothly. Um, when we talk about uh, cross-border coaches, what can be done to ensure they operate more smoothly? Uh, I think maybe uh, there they also are issues that the, the border was uh, crowded by, uh, by, by many private cars, so uh, maybe we can, uh, say, provide some stat, uh, designated link or a border checkpoint for the buses so that they can uh, go faster. You know, currently in Hong Kong, I, 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 I'm not sure how many uh, border links we have. Do you think we have enough? Like, like, assuming if the next time, if all the borders have opened, do you think we have we still we still have sufficient borders uh, to cater like all these people uh, moving in and out? Uh, I'm also not quite sure, but maybe at that time, uh, the the police they they realize that there is such a, a huge demand. They can have some, uh, say, temporary uh, arrangement about how how to help the the buses to get. Uh, to to the border uh, faster, and of course, I mean, you actually mentioned, you know, this involves my, my maybe like the police as well. I mean, for these special occasions where you know during uh, there's a lot of people leaving at night, a lot of uh, people and from different departments are involved in this kind of like I guess operation, right? Uh -huh. Yes, that's why that the senior management they uh, come up uh, have the uh, I say coordination among different government departments or bureaus, from police, uh, transport department, or immigration, uh, say all, all sort of the department that involved. Right, but the, when we talk about the the uh, cross border coach services, I mean, the the operators they already said uh, they increased services uh, on New Year's Eve. Um, so what else can they do to to help prevent a similar situation from happening? Mm, I think it's uh, not not much they they can be done. Or I think they already try their best to say to provide the uh, more buses uh, service uh, at that time. Right. And earlier you mentioned how uh, more can be done to ensure that uh, these uh, coaches and buses can can go faster to to cross border checkpoints. Um, I mean, what was the problem earlier then? Is it because of uh, what you're talking about, lots of private cars that were um, parked on the streets, or, or, or what other reasons were there? I think according to the news that, that uh, yesterday that it was uh, that also a very huge uh, traffic flow uh, to to the court uh, to the border checkpoint by the private car. That maybe the the people they 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 can can't get onto the buses, so they try try to call for the, those uh, private car for to to go to the border. You mean like Ubers? Um, I'm not sure, but maybe yeah. All right, and uh, so so I mean so if that is the case, uh, what do you think uh, that can be done in future? I mean, should there be a limit on number of private cars driving to the uh, to the border checkpoints uh, during special um, occasions? But uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that, that having the more border checkpoint open uh, and also providing the uh, metro uh, MTR service 
extend for a few hours or 24 hours can already help because the capacity of the MTL is much, much higher than the, the buses. So we talk a lot about the infrastructure uh, in terms of like people leaving uh, the city back to the mainland. But I'm just wondering, like when everyone, like a lot of visitors come in and especially gather like at the harbourfront at TST, Tim Sachoy or Central, for example, do you think our current infrastructure is enough to, you know, withhold or withstand all these people coming in? I think it's enough because for the infrastructure, we cannot decide for just for one or two hours in in a year. So we need to carefully plan for that. For that, but the capacity should be enough. Say as long as the the train and and have can provide the service at that time. All right, uh, Professor C. Hopefully, uh, the problem uh, will be resolved soon. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Tony C., Associate Professor at the Polytechnic University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. It's now 17 minutes past nine, and in a moment, we'll talk about air pollution. Operation Santa Claus 2023 is on. The annual charity fundraising drive jointly organized by Radio Television Hong Kong and the South China Morning Post is, for the 36th time, helping those in Hong Kong who need it the most. Operation Santa Claus has raised more than 369 million Hong Kong dollars for over 338 wonderful charity projects over the years. If you would like to help by donating any amount at all or by arranging your own fundraising event, just go to our website for all the details. OSCHK.org. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Now, a few days ago, the Environmental Protection Department said it recorded higher than normal air pollution levels, with many of its 18 monitoring stations flagging very high health risks and others coming back with a serious reading. To comment on the latest situation, we're now joined on the line by Patrick Fung, the Chief Executive Officer of Clean Air Network. Good morning, Mr Fung. Morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Well, um, just yesterday when I was uh, out along the Chimshachui waterfront in the afternoon, it, it was still quite hazy. But uh, mm-hmm. this morning when I checked the EPD's website, the air pollution readings on the monitoring stations are either moderate or low. So um, right. what is the current situation like? Right. Uh, I think uh, it's since um, late December uh, last year that uh, uh, EPD started to record a uh, abnormal level of um, uh, pollution uh, across uh, whole Hong Kong. Um, I think the situation um, has lasted for a couple of days now. Uh, it's actually uh, consecutive uh, the fifth day now. And, um, and as you mentioned, the uh, EPD reading uh, this morning is still um, low to moderate uh, for all 18 uh, pollution uh, stations in Hong Kong, but I expect uh, it will rise uh, to um, a higher level later today. I think what it means really to Hong Kong is that um, there are uh, five to six um, occasions or even uh, up to eight to ten occasions per year uh, like this for um, uh, consecutive five days, seven days of uh, high pollution episodes. The the question for, for us to think about is not really... Um, uh, uh, the reason behind, because we all know that, is a mix of uh, local pollution sources plus 
the weather condition because of the um, low um, airflow, so the uh, pollution produced it locally and regionally uh, would trap uh, in Hong Kong. But the real question is really to um, uh, how we are going to um, uh, address to these. Uh, in this high-level five-day uh, pollution episode, what we are going to do, for example, for SKU, uh, in this morning, say uh, at 7 a.m. at 8 p.m., all, all students are still going to SKU. They may still have outdoor PE lesson uh, because the AQHI does not reach uh, 7 uh, or above band. But then uh, if we look at the individual pollution concentration, for example, the PM2.5, PM10, the NO2, it all reaches, say, uh, four times, five, five times above um, uh, the WHO, uh, uh, the most stringent standard, which is um, uh, very harmful to uh, all the students. So I, I think this is a situation uh, that we need to address. So you mentioned about the you know the high pollution and you know children really shouldn't be outside uh, doing PE. You know why don't we talk about uh, uh, that a little bit? You know how does that affect when it's high when there's a high pollution? How mm-hmm. does it affect you know a person's health? Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, symptoms that will be triggered uh, by the uh, inhale of air pollutant. Uh, if uh, the, the student or actually the elderly or actually the chronic patients uh, across Hong Kong with asthma then the chance, the likelihood of uh, asthma uh, trigger would be uh, much higher these days. And I heard uh, from our medical circle that uh, there will be a lot of admission to, um, uh, to hospital during uh, pollution episodes like these. And uh, my immediate thinking is that whether the hospitals are aware about that, do they have um, the uh, operation uh, capacity to deal with increased number of um, um, admissions uh, during this day. So this is one thing that uh, we really have to think about as well. And what kind of air pollutants are we talking about, especially when it's like so high? Um, mm. You know, are we talking about certain particulates here? Right. Uh, so the major pollutant that still um, uh, are uh, harmful to Hong Kong right now is the particular meta uh, PM2.5, PM10, mm-hmm. as well as nitrogen dioxide, and then also the ozone. So uh, when, when I checked the past uh, 24, um, uh, 48 hours of all pollutant uh, status across uh, stations in Hong Kong, I found that um, there's an alarming uh, status when uh, actually uh, in, in the morning, uh, we usually have a, a relatively low uh, pollution, but then it reached uh, kind of a peak uh, during noontime uh, for PM2.5 and, and, and then uh, the NO2 is rising. And then in the afternoon, the ozone is catching up as well. So uh, in fact, the whole day, um, uh, we, we are exposed to high level of air pollution outdoor. But then the questions could also be, what about indoor? Are we safe indoor? Um, from, from a lot of um, scientific research, we understand that outdoor pollution and indoor air quality has a, a strong correlation. When outdoor pollution is high, indoor pollution uh, wouldn't be low. Mm. Um, of course, we may think we are protected by, say, the windows, um, the air condition, or air purifier, but uh, do they really work? So I, I think uh, also for schools, elderly homes, um, uh, all, all the uh, NGOs' premises that serve uh, the chronic patients should also look at indoor air quality in these um, high-pollution episode days.
All right, uh, Mr. Fung, I have a uh, message here uh, from a comment from uh, from one of our listeners, Michael, and he says, uh, pollution, the motor is running 24-7 and the winds change direction and pollution is perceived as more heavy. I guess he's suggesting that uh, the latest episode of uh, higher uh, air pollution levels is not uh, really, uh, it doesn't really mean that the air pollution has uh, worsened. It just means uh, maybe it's uh, linked to the weather, uh, maybe, or, or maybe like a, uh, uh, what the EPD said, it's, uh, it's uh, sort of related to lack of wind in Hong Kong earlier mm. this week. Is that, uh, uh, what was the, is, that, is that the main reason for, for this later, latest episode, a lack of wind? Well, uh, with, with, let's imagine it. If, if there's no, 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 there's zero uh, pollution in Hong Kong and zero mm. pollution in the GBA, uh, even if there's low wind, uh, what would happen? Nothing would happen, right? There wouldn't be any pollution driven by low wind. So low wind is actually a triggering factor. The real source of pollution is actually the, uh, you know, uh, all the pollution sources on the road transport, uh, the marine transport, and then the industrial activities. So uh, we have to be aware about that. So this is one thing. But the other thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that how are we going to address to that? How are we going to respond to that? Uh, uh, how do we um, uh, uh, alter our um, uh, individual behavior in these days would be important because there's a very strong individual and public health implication. Mm, and, you know, obviously you mentioned about actually the underlying issue of all this is because of the high pollution. And, you know, given that, I'm, I just wonder about, you know, the, the pattern um, f- mm-hmm. for the last five, ten years. Are we actually seeing an increase in, like, pollution in, in Hong Kong and the greater Bay, Bay Area? Yeah, uh, if we look at a long-term trend, uh, it is. Uh, over the past uh, 10 years, there has been uh, significant improvement. Uh, but Hong Kong, what we, are, uh, we have been through is that since 2013, we were at the peak of pollution. It was really high. Like um, Every day is like uh, today, mm. back then in 2013. But then after uh, 10 years of um, effort, um, I think pollution dropped by 40 to 60%, mm. which... It sounds good, but then if we look at um, the yardstick, if we look at International Well Health Organization standard, uh, we are still um, uh, 600% above the Well Health Organization most stringent standard at the roadside um, uh, in terms of NO2. So that, that's one thing we also have to consider. How are we going to um, uh, address that quality issue uh, in a in a long term basis uh, going forward? Right. You mentioned uh, the impact that air pollution has on children uh, and school activities earlier. Um, are you suggesting that the government needs to come up with a guideline or, or a set of a contingency measures for when um, air pollution levels are high or, or like really high? Uh, yes, indeed. I, I think uh, what we have so far is a mix of measure uh, to deal with outdoor pollution, which is good. Uh, those are emission control. We should do that. Uh, we should accelerate the transition of bus uh, towards electric, etc. So that is one thing the government is uh, uh, doing more on that. On the other hand, for indoor air quality, so uh, we understand that the EPD uh, published a guiding note for indoor air quality management for schools and elderly homes back in 2022. But then uh, what we heard so far from the education sector and the uh, social sector, the elderly service sector, um, the, the awareness is still low. They don't know how to operate that. Uh, for example, there is no environmental expertise within schools or elderly homes 
we can almost think about um, uh, how difficult it would be if a school staff, say administration staff or teaching staff, have to deal with air quality. And so I think uh, there should be resources uh, or even uh, think further, how are we going to move uh, from right now? It is a voluntary uh, management scheme towards more mandatory scheme in terms of indoor air quality standards. And just really, really quick, I, w- I want to talk about like indoors because I guess a lot of us, you know, at the end of the day, stay, stay indoor. Mm-hmm. What are the things that we can do to, to reduce the, you know, the pollution levels in our homes? Uh, individually, I, I think uh, there's something that we can do. For example, um, uh, all the filters from the um, air con and then air purifier, etc. Uh, we, we can all, all, always uh, maintain it uh, to keep it at um, high uh, functioning uh, uh, capacity or performance. Uh, but then for, for those institutions or residents uh, which are less resourceful, I think the government or the society at large should uh, uh, think about how to uh, support them holistically. All right, Mr. Fung, we have to take a break for the news very soon. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Patrick Fung, the Chief Executive Officer of Clean Air Network. And uh, after the news, in around two minutes' time, we're going to take a, take a, we'll get, get an update on the uh, New Year's Day earthquake in Japan. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, dry with sunny intervals during the day. The top temperature will be around 22 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh, north to northeasterlies. At the moment, it's 19 degrees. Degrees, relative humidity, 72%. It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Barry O'Rourke. Japanese officials are investigating what communications took place between flight control and a Japan Airlines passenger plane ahead of its collision with a Coast Guard plane on the runway of Haneda Airport in Tokyo yesterday, in which five people died. A hospitality expert says the travel chaos after the New Year's Eve fireworks display when thousands of visitors struggled to return to the mainland was an isolated incident but agreed that border crossings could stay open longer. Dennis Wong from the Vocational Training Council says the authorities should also consider keeping the MTR open longer. And a rescue operation is continuing in freezing weather in central Japan as aftershocks hamper efforts to look for survivors of Monday's earthquake. At least 50 people are now known to have died in the quake. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. HKE Toll is implemented at all government toll tunnels. With a vehicle tag, there is no need to stop to pay tunnel tolls. Tolls will be deducted from your account automatically. When using Thailand Tunnel, please continue to use the existing payment methods. After Thailand Tunnel becomes a government toll tunnel, HKE Toll will also be implemented there. Visit hketoll.gov.hk for more. Drive smart with HKE Toll. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is applicable to Hong Kong. It promotes equal rights for persons with disabilities so that they can live independently in a barrier-free community, have access to information, participate in society, and unleash their potential. Respect and care for their needs. Honor the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Build a barrier-free society.
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Philip Wong and me, Janice Wong. In the final half hour of the program, we'll take a look at the situation in Japan as rescuers continue to search for survivors of the New Year's Day earthquake that killed at least 55 people and caused widespread destruction. And joining us on the line now is Professor Edward Vickers from Kyushu University in Fukuoka and William Pasek, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Good morning, Professor Vickers. Morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks for joining us on the program. And uh, good morning, Mr. Pasek. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And uh, now the um, 7.5 magnitude quake that rocked the Ishikawa prefecture on New Year's Day was uh, so powerful that was it was felt on the other side of the country in Tokyo. Mr. Pasek, um, can you tell us about your experience that day? Well, you know, I was uh, basically... Uh, engaged in uh, holidaying with uh, some friends and I have to be honest I was in the Yokohama area I'm just south of Tokyo and I I felt nothing uh, sitting there um, basically drinking some sake with friends and I saw some alerts on my phone and we turned on NHK television to figure out what had happened I think many uh, Tokyoites uh, felt that they were witnessing a, a news event that happened overseas, not in their own country. But I think as the magnitude of the event became clear, uh, everyone's eyes were glued on, glued to the media. Right. And, and Professor Vickers, you're in uh, Fukuoka, um, where a tsunami advisory was issued after the quake on Monday. Um, what's the situation there like now? Well, uh, I mean, we're here in Fukuoka on the, on the sort of western side of Japan. And so when the tsunami <coughs> warning was issued, and I mean, like everybody else, we'd been spending New Year with family. And so we sort of got back to the flat and switched on the radio. And suddenly uh, there was news of this earthquake that had just happened. So we switched on the TV, which everyone will do to sort of find out what the advice is from the government. And there was a tsunami warning uh, or a tsunami advisory, at least, issued for northern Kyushu. Um, so we we sort of went to the local government website to search for more specific information. Uh, and uh, very quickly, they were advising, well, look, you know, the tsunami, if, if a tsunami arrives in northern Kyushu, it's not going to be a very big one, uh, but uh, you should not approach the coast. Uh, in other words, you know, anyone tempted to go and sort of, uh, you know, view the spectacle should not do that. Uh, Professor Victor, so in, in the end, from that uh, Kyushu region, were there any like tsunamis, like, however, however big or small? And did you actually feel like, you know, any of the quake? Oh, we didn't feel anything. Mm. Um, uh, although we were driving at the actual, you know, the time of the, the initial mm. earthquake. But I don't think anything was really felt here in northern Kyushu. And in the end, there wasn't any significant tsunami that, that reached us here. Right. And Mr. Pasek, I mean, I know you're not in, uh, you're not in Tokyo at the time of the earthquake, but do you know uh, anyone who, who's been affected by the quake? Um, certainly, I have some friends in the Ishikawa prefecture area uh, who have been affected. Um, power outages, um, Wi-Fi outages, of course, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the fact that we're talking about wintertime. Um, certainly never helps in terms of losing power. But yes, I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of confusion about the extent of the damage in that area. So I have been in contact with, with some friends and colleagues who 
are currently doing their best. Right. And uh, Professor Vickers, uh, you've been living in Japan for a long time. Are you surprised by the level of destruction caused by this uh, latest earthquake? I mean, it's uh, destroyed. I mean, so far we know it's destroyed tens of thousands of homes and has left uh, almost 45,000 households without power in the region. Well, given how large, how, how sort of strong this earthquake was, I don't think the level of destruction is surprising. Mm. Um, and I mean, one factor perhaps to consider here, and I'm not an expert on, I'm not an engineer, um, but uh, that region of Japan, sort of northwestern Japan, uh, areas that were most severely affected by the earthquake, Niigata, Yamagata, um, these are areas where, um, you know, there's quite a lot of depopulation in some of the smaller towns. Uh, and so a lot of the buildings are quite old. Um, uh, and most of the buildings that will have collapsed uh, or been severely damaged as a result of the earthquake are probably older buildings, um, you know, dating to the period before the Kobe earthquake uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, when building regulations were quite significantly tightened across Japan. So you'll find that generally, you know, the buildings that are built after the mid-1990s are more robust and you know more likely to stand up to earthquakes whereas those that date from earlier periods uh, are often not so uh, earthquake resistant but uh, professor vickers uh, I, uh, oh, sorry, I think please. in this region that's that's you know a lot of the buildings date to that earlier period uh, so you mentioned about you know the kobe earthquake in 1995 but of course another recent one was uh, the earthquake uh, near fukushima in 2011 you know when when this quake happened uh, on new years did people relate it to to that particular incident because fukushima one was was actually quite devastating well gosh i mean everybody in japan when an earthquake like this happens and when it you know when it's happening off the coast and and, and there's a tsunami warning everybody immediately thinks of the 2011 uh, earthquake i mean for anyone uh in japan for anyone japanese that was a, a hugely traumatic event so of course you know that's 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 immediately you know very much the, to the forefront of people's minds um, yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, Philip just mentioned a few of the earthquakes that happened in Japan in the past. Um, would you say Japan is quite well prepared for natural disasters like earthquakes? Uh, you're asking me? Yes, Professor Vickers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, comparatively speaking, I'd have to say yes. Um, and uh, uh I mean, I, I, I asked my children yesterday, in fact, you know, so what, what are you told at school uh, about, you know, how to prepare for earthquakes? And, you know, they immediately uh, said, well, get under the desk uh, uh, while the tremors are actually happening. As soon as the tremors have subsided, uh, go to uh, the roof of the school. Uh, and then when you're instructed to do so, go to the uh, the sort of uh, set assembly point, which in most um, cases is uh, the, the sort of school hall. Um, and that's the assembly point for you. you typically, that's a, a, an assembly point for the surrounding community as well. Uh, so we're seeing in Ishikawa uh, and uh, regions around there still, you know, people uh, basically 
living in school halls and similar places uh, until they're told it's safe to return home. In terms of the rescue efforts right now uh, in the Ikishiwa um, area, Mr. Pasek, do you know any information about that? You know, is is it are they able to you know tr- um, rescue rescue people, rescuers are they able to go there and 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 help out? Well, certainly the, the the devastation in the region is not as serious as it's three eleven from you know basically mm. from March two thousand eleven in terms of the the devastation you saw in the Fukushima area. However, there are a lot of there's a lot of road damage that that's been cited by rescue officials as as hindering their ability to fully deploy resources. Um, so a lot of a lot of the resources that are being brought to the region are being flown in, of course, helicopter, um, airplane. But in terms of the physical infrastructure, it, there are challenges with regard to getting resources there. You know, one thing that I'll mention about the, the, the earthquake in 2011, what I thought about immediately on New Year's Day was the nuclear power plants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ishikawa Prefecture, you do have a nuclear power plant. And I think, you know, as soon as the WhatsApp threads between myself and other journalists based in Japan began going, that was our biggest concern. Um, in, in many ways, we still have a bit of PTSD from the radiation crisis of 2011. Um, you know, I, I was here in Tokyo watching television news, getting calls from New York City from my family saying, get out of there. So in many ways, there, there was a lot of concern with regard to that. And I think once the authorities kind of tamped down that speculation, once they created a, some confidence that the uh, nuclear power plant, that the it's called Chica, um, was safe, I think that allayed a lot of concerns about the broader damage. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned the Shika nuclear plant. I mean, it, it did see, I mean, the electricity system did uh, was partially disabled following the quake, but the, um, there were no major abnormalities. I mean, n- no major abnormalities have been reported. Um, I guess that's still the case, right? Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, certainly economists are trying to figure out is the economic in- impact of, of this latest trembler. You know, certainly the earthquake in 2011 had incredibly large effects on Japan's economy and basically the, the government's fiscal position over time. This devastation seems to be a bit more manageable. And I think in some ways, um, J- Japan is fortunate in that basically the Ishikawa prefecture area is not a major industrial hub. So economists are not necessarily rushing to the drawing board to redo GDP forecast for the year, but it is an interesting challenge for Prime Minister Kishida and his government because Prime Minister Kishida's approval ratings are about 17%, 17%. That is incredibly low for an LDP government, and this is an added challenge. You can argue the silver lining is this provides the government an opportunity to show uh, some level of confidence and competence, um, but we'll see how it plays out. And Professor Vickers, uh, what, what do you think? I mean, uh, just now, uh, Mr. Prosecki says uh, the impact uh, from this earthquake, uh, he described it as manageable. Do you, do you share that view? Well, yes, I do. I mean, because as, I, as, 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 uh, as he's pointed out, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, this region is, uh, I don't want to use the term sort of <laughs> backward, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not economically central for Japan. Uh, it's it's uh, a region that's um, like many parts of Japan witnessed sort of depopulation uh, over recent years as people sort of leave to go to the big cities and primarily Tokyo. Um, so, you know, I think that um, 
economically, the impact of this earthquake is not going to be huge, despite the, the sort of very visible extent of the destruction. Um, uh, I was I'm perhaps going to sort of um, raise a different point um, related to the, the the way in which the, the memory of the 2011 the awful earthquake and tsunami in, in, in 2011 uh, has been sort of um, packaged uh, here in Japan. Um, I mean, I, I was involved in organizing a conference actually in Hiroshima um, in November uh, last year, uh, which was de devoted to the theme of sort of uh, education in post-crisis scenarios. And what was very striking to me there was the way that the, the Japanese speakers all seem to be very keen to sort of celebrate Japan's achievements um, in sort of recovering from crisis, in you know resilience in the face of crises of various descriptions. Uh, and, and the 2011 earthquake was one of the examples that was cited. And I, I think you know clearly that was uh, you know a nuclear disaster that was very destructive as it was and could have been much, much worse, could very easily have been much, much worse. And um, many reports of that disaster suggest that the official response, <clears throat> the response of the nuclear industry was was a bit shambolic. Um, but that sort of narrative of that 2011 uh, emergency does not seem to be the um, you know the, the sort of dominant narrative here in Japan, and there's not really been a sort of proper. I think many people feel many people who experience that don't feel that there's been a proper reckoning uh, with the um, the extent of that disaster, um, and that relates to the fears that Mr. Prosek mentioned about um, you know what's going to happen to the nuclear power stations when a, a, an earthquake like this occurs. I think many people are still not reassured on that score. Right. Mr. Pesak, do you do you agree? Yeah, no, I mean, I, that, 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 I know. I think Professor Vickers makes some very good points here. I think one of the, you know, one of the things that makes the Fukushima crisis um, so complicated is it's an ongoing one in some ways, right? Um, there still are, you know, myriad misplaced uh, sort of displaced families in the Fukushima area. Um, mm. There are large sections of Fukushima that remain a, a no-go zone to this day, and there are still uh, a large number of unspent fuel rods that are basically sitting uh, on, on the roof of, of, these, of one of these nuclear reactors in the Fukushima area, and Japan is only now in some ways grappling with how to discard that waste. Japan, of course, is uh, releasing uh, irradiated water into the, the, the seas around Japan, which has created some geopolitical headaches in the region. And I think it's one of those problems that's still ongoing in that Japan has never really reckoned with the so-called nuclear village's role in the devastation, in that you know it was, it was viewed at the time as a, a bit of a man-made disaster. Um, so many mistakes were made on the part of the nuclear uh, regulatory authority and also TEPCO, which managed the Fukushima nuclear power plants. And so it, it just there just seems to be so much unfinished business with regard to what happened in Fukushima. And that's why I guess there is a, there's been an effort to separate that from what's happened in the last few days.
All right. And Professor Vickers, I, I know you need to go very soon. Um, just one final question. I mean, looking at the the government's uh, rescue efforts and what, what it's been doing, um, do you think it will help boost uh, the, the confidence or boost people's confidence in uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kushida's uh, government? <laughs> well, um, possibly. Um, I mean, people might, people certainly who remember the 2011 earthquake uh, and, um, you know, look, I, of, of course, you know, 55 people so far, I understand, have been killed tragically as a result of this earthquake. But, um, you know, and, and that's 55 deaths too many. But people who remember the 2011 earthquake will 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 perhaps feel that Japan has got off relatively <laughs> lightly this time uh, and possibly will give the government some of the credit for that. Whether that's deserved or not is another question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I personally have my doubts. Um, I mean, uh, Mr. Prasek mentioned, you know, the, 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 uh, the responsibility of the so-called nuclear village, the sort of cozy, um, uh, 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 cartel basically of official bureaucrats and, um, the sort of uh, electricity generating monopolies with their nuclear power stations that was really, you know, to blame for a lot of what happened in 2011 with the, the Fukushima uh, power plant. That's, that's still in place. And, it, and in a sense, they, they, they escaped the rap in 2011 because it wasn't the LDP that was in power then. It was the opposition party, uh, which I think very unfairly uh, took a lot of the blame for the nuclear disaster in 2011, when in fact, really, it was the LDP establishment um, that that had really, you know, created uh, the context in which that disaster took place. And it's that establishment that is once again in power now. So if, you know, they do get <laughs> credit for the sort of relatively, um, you know, light damage of this earthquake, I think that's that's possibly dangerous given the lack of a proper reckoning with the you know the dangers that emerged in 2011. All right uh, Professor Vickers thanks again for joining us this morning and that's uh, Professor Edward Vickers from Kyushu University in Fukuoka and uh, Mr. Pusek any any anything to add to what uh, uh, Professor Vickers just said? I mean do you well, share I, his concerns? I, just, I, I do actually but I think um, you know what's interesting is as I said earlier I think that this is an interesting opportunity for Prime Minister Kushida to perhaps uh, display some competence and win back some public support. But I also view this, view this as a kind of split screen moment, if you will, because at a moment when Kushida seems to be on the way out, you have uh, Mr. Hayashi, Mr. Uh, Yoshimasa Hayashi, who has been, he, he has ambitions for the Prime Ministership himself. He's a former Kushida's cabinet member, but he's also the current uh, top government spokesman um, for the Kushida cabinet. And to see him giving press conferences talking about the devastation and what Japan plans to do at a moment when Prime Minister Kushida seems on the way out and Mr. Hayashi is on the rise, perhaps, it does provide this interesting you know, split screen between a politician um, who's facing a lot of headwinds and one who's hoping to generate some tailwinds. And you never want to essentially try to exploit a tragedy. But I do think it will be interesting to see how the political 
um, deck is reshoveled because of this. For the Prime Minister, uh, Fumio Kishida, would, would you say this is kind of like a make-or-break situation for him? Well, I think it, it's an important situation. I don't think it's make-or-break. I think the bigger issue for him is really the economy. Um, Japan probably ended 2023 in something of a mild recession. Um, and we also are looking at a moment when China's slowing, when the Bank of Japan is supposed to be pivoting away from quantitative easing. So I think the economy and wages and inflation are the big concern. But certainly this is a distraction for the Kushida government, something he'll have to deal with very seriously at a moment when investors are hoping that the government reforms the economy. So it's an interesting test. Right, and uh, and and we've been we talked about uh, the the earthquake situation earlier, and uh, there there have been more than a hundred and fifty aftershocks so far. I mean, um, and of course, I I guess that has been compl- complicating rescue efforts. What's the situation like when we talk about uh, getting relief supplies to uh, people affected by the quake? I mean, how difficult has that been? And of course, uh, we did hear yesterday about uh, the collision between a Japan Airlines jet and a Coast Guard plane on its way to provide earthquake relief. Um, yeah, what's been happening there? Well, it's been a very, very crazy couple of days uh, into 2024 for Japan, certainly. Um, I think we're almost waiting for frogs and locusts to fall from the sky at this point. Um, but I think, you know, what happened at Haneda with that, that crash, the, coastal, the, the Coast Guard plane, that certainly dramatized the situation to some extent more. But getting getting supplies in has been it's been all basically air transport. Uh, the roads, as I mentioned earlier, are are damaged to some extent, and there are some concerns about the stability of the roads. So they're flying a lot of goods in uh, via helicopter. I'm not hearing a lot of reports about problems in terms of getting supplies and resources to the region. Uh, again, this, this is not the, the the same sort of magnitude of quake we saw in 2011. Um, but the government certainly is certainly acting very rapidly to get its act together. Uh, Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. has talked about the U.S. military helping Japan with transport in any way it needs to be. So I think Japan is ramping up things um, pretty impressively at this point. Just slightly off topic, since we're talking about the inc- uh, accident yesterday at uh, Haneda Airport. Do you have more details about it? I mean, is it just because of purely miscommunication? Um, like what happened? Yeah, I mean, they're still investigating. I mean, the, 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 in many ways, the, certainly, the, the, so the gel flight clearly had uh, authorization to land. Mm-hmm. It had guidance to land. It wasn't until the, the plane was, you know, basically upon the runway that they realized that there was a smaller aircraft. Mm-hmm. The question is, did the Coast Guard plane, did the pilot veer off course in some ways? Did the air control tower uh, staff miscommunicate? No one really knows at this point. But I think that, you know, in many ways, I think a lot of folks have looked at this tragedy and thought, how in the world did Japan Airlines get 300, I believe, 97 passengers off a burning plane in 90 seconds? It's an incredible feat. And I, 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 my, my hats, it really is off to Japan Airlines for pulling that off. I'm still amazed. It's just miraculous. Yeah, I remember seeing photos of it yesterday, like the entire plane was literally on fire. I think it was was just amazing to see all the people survive. But obviously, unfortunately, um, for the other smaller plane, I think five of them unfortunately passed away with the the, um, pilot in critical condition. Um, So I want to go back to... um, the the earthquake um, for for this particular earthquake on New Year's, um, luckily there was no uh, damage to the nearby power plant, a nuclear power plant. But I mean, given the 
devastating effects from the 2011 earthquake. Are people still surprised that the country is still relying, you know, a lot on nuclear power? Absolutely. I think if you told the average Japanese 20 years ago that in 2023 so much power would be generated uh, by nuclear power plants, given the seismic activity in Japan, um, there would have been a lot of doubts. I think there's another way in which this is a risk factor for Prime Minister Kishida and the LDP. After the earthquake in 2011, basically almost all nuclear power plants in Japan were shut down because of public safety concerns. But very quietly, the LDP has been reopening power plants, bringing them back online. And the question is, I mean, you know, thankfully, we seem to have avoided a nuclear crisis this time around. But it really is the case that when you have such a seismically active country like Japan, building nuclear power plants and running nuclear power plants, uh, you know, it, it's just it's something that the public is not behind and will we see another backlash in that direction so i do think this is a a concern that the government might have to deal with in the months ahead given its very stealthy uh program of restarting nuclear power plants sort of behind the scenes i'm I'm not sure if it's fair to ask you this question but i was actually quite surprised to see an earthquake happening on the west side of japan because in my mind usually happens on on the east i mean for for you or or to to your knowledge is this actually a rare occurrence to occur on the west side well it's certainly a mag earthquake of this magnitude is rare on the west side of japan i mean certainly here in the, the south southeast of japan we certainly tend to have a lot of seismic activity more than certainly we are comfortable with um but yeah this was a bit of a surprise and in many ways i think when we were looking at say nhk television looking at maps they had these blinking red lights of the coastline that was in harm's way and it was sort of the opposite of what we saw uh, in 2011 Mm -hmm. and it is a reminder that i mean japan really just is in a, a very dangerous neighborhood in terms of seismic activity and this this certainly is given all the aftershocks we're seeing at the moment and fears about bigger aftershocks it's going to be a very tense few days in in this country and and what what are experts saying saying right now are they expecting more aftershocks or even um, more more uh, serious earthquakes well they do expect more aftershocks um the, the nature of aftershocks the good news is that they tend to lose intensity and they tend to lose potency um, over time but with seismic activity with tectonic plates you never know um we just have to really wait and hope for the best and japanese authorities certainly have learned a lot from the events of 2011 um, and previous earthquakes in 1995 and hopefully they'll be marshalling that knowledge and their resources to you know basically keep any damage to a minimum Again, it's just it's going to be a, a very uncertain, intense few days in, in Western Japan at this point. And just very, very quickly, uh, we only have a minute left. But one of the top destinations for Hong Kongers is Japan. So, you know, what is your advice for Hong Kongers if they do go to Japan and they experience an earthquake? Well, there's nothing really <laughs> you can really do. Now, actually, ironically, the biggest earthquake I've experienced was in Taiwan. Um, so, I, I think um, you know, in many ways, I would say. Don't change your plans. Come to Japan. I mean, if you're planning, if you were tra- planning to travel to the Ishikawa Prefecture and you got to those areas, um, certainly getting in could be a problem. But in cer- certainly, if you were planning to visit Hokkaido, visit Tokyo, um, there's really no reason to change your travel plans. Japan is a it's a safe and increasingly hospitable place with amazing food and experiences. And welcome.
All right, so Mr. Pasek, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, William Pasek, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Philip, and producer, Raphael. Danny Kitchings and Kaha will be back again tomorrow with another edition of Back Chat.